going to give a special acknowledgement to Carrie. Tomorrow we celebrate our second wedding anniversary. And I just want to say how thankful I am for you and that you um, not only put up with me, but... Um, you know, she had to deal with living in three different states in the past year. And, uh, yeah, just, I, I'm so thankful for you. And, um, yeah, just very, very blessed. And thank you very much. And, um, and I appreciate how, how welcoming everyone's been, not just to me, but also to Carrie. You, you've all just been very wonderful and, and sincerely appreciative of that. Also, when I mentioned... I mean to mention this every week, and I keep forgetting, but one of my goals is to try to meet with everybody from the church, and so it's something that I try to be active in doing, just reaching out and seeing about grabbing a meal or some Dairy Queen or, or, or whatever, so uh, yeah, trying to trying to go through, and um, but also always open to, to invitations too, and, and again, just want to do the most that I can to, to be accessible. Um, if you ever need to meet with me... Uh, don't hesitate to, to reach out and ask. Um, I think I pretty much always have time within, if not that same day, by the next day. Again, it's, it's a priority for me to, to make time. And uh, so, yeah, if there's ever anything you need to talk, talk about that's, you know, a little bit more uh, heavy than just a meet and greet, uh, very, very happy to do that and, and be helpful in any way that, that I can. Text this morning is from John chapter 3. I invite you to turn there. It was mentioned that Daylight Savings Time is next week. I actually don't acknowledge Daylight Savings Time, so I'll be here uh, at the regular time. <laughs> also, I'd like to pray for uh, Justin Crone with, Cho- with Chosen People Ministries, who is here this morning. I hope that you were here in Sunday school. Uh, wonderful talk that he gave on explaining the Jewish holiday of Sukkot and uh, how we see God at work in that and fulfillment of Christ in that and what that means for Christians today. A very edifying message and uh, thankful to have Justin with us. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and grace. We thank you for this day. Lord, I I do pray for Justin and the work that he does with Chosen People Ministries. Um, Lord, I I just pray that he continue to uh, be a a herald of your gospel through that ministry and the work that he's doing. Pray that um, you'd continue to bless him and his family as they minister in Chicago, as they do, as he does trips to Israel. And uh, again, just pray for um, that work to continue to, to go forward, Lord. I pray for Bob and Ellie Nilsson. I pray for Bob as he is, um, is sick and in hospice. And I just continue to pray for him. Pray that he be in good spirits and, and pray um, for, for family and friends around him. But I also pray for Ellie in what is undoubtedly a very difficult time. And I pray for your nearness to her. I pray for strength for her. I pray for peace for her, Lord. And I pray that as a church we come around her and, and support her. Lord, I pray for the message today, that it be faithful to your word, that it be edifying to your people, that it be convicting us of areas where we need to be convicted, that it point us to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Actually, going to be beginning this morning in the book of Ezekiel, we'll, we'll get to John. 
Uh, it's a passage that Justin happened to also talk about. We did not coordinate that in any way, but uh, Prophet Ezekiel, a book that was written during a very dark time in Israel's history. After repeated warnings from God's prophets, Israel did not listen, but rather continued to fall into sin and rebellion. Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27, through all of the sin of Israel, though we do see a glimmer of light and hope for Israel, Exodus 30, I'm sorry, Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27, says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I will sprinkle clean water on you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will put my spirit within you. The gospel is the only hope for the world. Many don't accept this idea. Many think that humanity can get better on its own. The last century has seen incredible advances in science and technology. Discoveries which have helped people live longer. Cured diseases that used to be death sentences. Global poverty has decreased. In many parts of the world, including America, the wealth of the average person has increased. Crime rates have decreased. Murder rates have decreased. But in spite of all those advancements, the world is still sinful. War, a global industry of human trafficking, modern-day slavery, totalitarian dictators in much of the world... Religious oppression. Man's own goodness is not the key to a better world. Romans 8.22 says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Our hope is in the gospel of Jesus Christ and God's goodness working through God's people in the world. We're continuing our series through the gospel of John this morning. We're going to look at some of the same verses that we looked at last week, but we're also going to be looking at a longer overall passage. That's why we didn't, uh, because of that reason, seeing the entire passage and how it fits together, verses 1 to 15, um, I thought would make more sense of the passage than just starting where we left off last week. And I do have another emphasis today, more, uh, last week we talked about regeneration, being born again and its connection to faith. Today we're looking at it more in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's role in being born again. Main idea of this passage this morning, Jesus brings new life to a dead world. And we're going to look at three affirmations from this text. I will say off the bat that most of our time will be on this first point. So when I say second point, don't think... He's only a third of the way through. Like it, most of it is in, in the first point today. And so we begin, if you're taking notes, with a divine command. John 3, verses 1 and 2. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, 
We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you, that you do unless God is with him. We were introduced to Nicodemus last week. We'll see him two more times in the Gospel of John, once in chapter 7, and then in John chapter 19. He's actually somebody who helps with the tending to the body of Jesus after the crucifixion, preparing Jesus for burial. So Jesus' ministry does make a significant impact on Nicodemus. But in this initial interaction of these two men, Nicodemus has come to Christ, and he's trying to figure out who Jesus is. Our text tells us that Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. He was a Pharisee. Talked a little bit about the Pharisees last week. They were experts in the law. It was a political movement. He was also likely a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling council. So highly regarded, powerful, influential leader in the community. In verse 9, Jesus will actually refer to Nicodemus as the teacher of Israel. Uh, which seems to come across as kind of a, an honorific title that he gets to Nicodemus. He wasn't the head of the council, but it seems like he might have been some, like an especially esteemed scholar. Uh, just being a member of the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, with, with where he was, he would have been an expert in the Old Testament law. I mentioned last week that he likely would have had the first five books of the Old Testament memorized. Incredible knowledge of the Old Testament. I don't know if any of you guys ever watched the show Antiques Roadshow. Uh, it's an incredible how knowledgeable these experts are. They'll give them a piece of pottery, and they're looking at it, and they'll tell you who made it, what his mom's name was. It's like they know every possible thing you could conceivably imagine about what they're looking at. Nicodemus knew the Old Testament to that level incredibly knowledgeable on it. And he comes to Jesus and says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's an interesting statement. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And then Jesus says, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In general, I think it's helpful to pay attention to how Jesus interacts with people. Sometimes Jesus is asked a question and responds with a question. Sometimes he responds with a parable. But here, it's almost like Jesus responds to the question that Nicodemus didn't know how to ask. It's almost like Nicodemus is asking, who are you? Or what are you all about? And Jesus states that a person must be born again to see the kingdom of God. But we see that Nicodemus misses the point. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Thinking about this passage, I empathize with Nicodemus. I try to put myself in his shoes. Do you ever have anything just go over your head? I do sometimes. I'm not the best movie watcher. Sometimes I'll be watching a movie with Carrie and some guy gets like betrayed or arrested. I'm like, that's terrible. And she goes, that's the bad guy. And it just, I missed it. <laughs> if it were me and I was told you must be born again, I wouldn't have known what that meant. And I, but I would have been like, oh yeah. 
Sounds good. Not knowing what that meant. Gone home. Carrie would have asked how the conversation went. I said, good. She would have said, what did you find out? I must be born again. What does that mean? Long pause. Did you ask him what that meant? No, I did not. Nicodemus doesn't make the connection. Jesus will elaborate a little bit further. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Water and spirit. So Jesus has said, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So they're both obviously important statements that Jesus is making about seeing and entering the kingdom of God. But what do they have to do with each other? They're both connected to seeing and entering God's kingdom. The key to answering that question is found in the passage I quoted in the beginning in Ezekiel 36. In that passage, water and spirit are both present, and it says that the Lord will give the believer a new heart. Reading it again, Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. God giving his spirit and a new heart. Where Jesus says we must be born again, it is by the Holy Spirit that we are born again. Jesus justifies by his perfect life and by his blood, and it is the Holy Spirit who indwells believers. It is not up to us to save ourselves. The rebirth is through the Spirit. New theological term. Last week we talked about regeneration. This week, baptism of the Holy Spirit. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is different from water baptism. Both are important. We've already seen the idea of baptism of the Holy Spirit in John. John 1.33. John the Baptist is speaking about Jesus and says... He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And all four Gospels make that point. That Jesus brings a filling of the Holy Spirit to such an abundant degree that it is a baptism. It is a privilege which all Christians share. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. And the baptism the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is foretold in that Ezekiel passage. And that's not the only place in the Old Testament where we see it. Joel 2.28 says, It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. That initial pouring out of the Holy Spirit is fulfilled in Acts chapter 2 on Pentecost Sunday. All Christians have the Holy Spirit because all Christians are born again, are regenerate which is of the Spirit. And all Christians are baptized in the Holy Spirit at the moment they come to faith. 
There is no way to be a Christian without these events happening in your life. Romans chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. Great passage which communicates this idea. Romans 8, 9 and 10. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. The Spirit sanctifies us. He sets us apart. Romans 8.11 If the Spirit of whom who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. The Spirit works to transform the believer. 2 Corinthians 3.18 We all, with unveiled face, Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Spiritual life can only come from the Spirit. That's what Jesus means in our passage in John 3 when he says in verse 6, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. The flesh begets the worldly and sinful life. The spirit begets spiritual life. The new life that God promises to his people. There are many other things that the spirit does in the life of a believer. All three persons of the Trinity are active in the gospel. We can't look at the love of God without the work of Christ who died for a sinful world. Yet, we can't discount the work of the Holy Spirit because without the Holy Spirit... A person does not have faith in the gospel because the faith in the gospel means that a person has the Holy Spirit. We must be born again. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 to 6. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us, Richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Again, salvation and the Spirit go together. Being born again and the Spirit go together. Jesus is the one who died for sins, but we are given new life through the Spirit by faith in Christ. A person who truly has faith has the Spirit. And once you have the Spirit, you cannot lose it. In fact, it's because we need a work of the Holy Spirit that we can have assurance of salvation. Because it is God who works in us through the Spirit. When you truly trust in the gospel, trust in Jesus and what he has done, you are given new spiritual life. Jesus said that we must be born of water and the Spirit. Returning to our passage in John 3. Where he says water and Spirit, some take that to to refer to water baptism. And that's logical, but there are some things to keep in mind. Because ultimately, this passage is not about water baptism. It's not mentioned anywhere else in this passage. The great commission which Jesus gave to the disciples after the resurrection to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit has not yet been given. Just because water is mentioned does not mean it has to refer to baptism. 
In our next chapter, John chapter 4, Jesus talks of the water that he provides and how those who drink of that water will never thirst. He's referring to the Holy Spirit. In John 7, Jesus talks of the living water which he supplies. And then again, is the Holy Spirit. Jesus criticizes Nicodemus for not understanding what he's saying. If he's referring to water baptism, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. How would Nicodemus be expected to have that understanding when Jesus hasn't yet instituted the practice? However, it would make sense to expect Nicodemus to understand Ezekiel 36. Again, baptism is important. But baptism is an action that is symbolic of your inward faith, a faith that God has poured his spirit upon his people. Baptism does nothing if a person is not ultimately born again. And I believe that's true regardless of if a person believes in infant baptism or believer's baptism. Ultimately, you still need to have faith. Given this study of the Bible, given the promises of God of his spirit, given Ezekiel 36 and other similar passages, promises of a new heart, for all these reasons, for Nicodemus, it should not be that great of a logical leap that a new birth, a new life, would be necessary in coming to faith in God. But we often miss that point too. Again, so, we, so often it can be so easy to criticize people in biblical stories for not getting it. But oftentimes I think we have more in common with them than maybe we want to admit to ourselves. Because the Bible constantly talks of the necessity of faith. The Bible constantly talks about our sin. Throughout the Gospels, we see constant references to Jesus' death for our sin. And yet the world so often has this temptation to think that our standing before God is in ourselves and what we do. Verses 7 and 8, Jesus says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or, or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus gives an illustration based on wind, on weather. He's telling that before modern meteorology. But I think even today, to the average person, I think most people, myself included, don't really know how wind works. Yet, we feel it. Here we feel it a lot. We see its impact. We hear it. I thought our house was literally going to blow over last night. <laughs> Jesus says, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The point is that there is evidence of the work of the Spirit in the life of a believer. We don't always understand how the Spirit works, but His work in the life of a Christian is evident. I again refer back to Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-seven. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Israel was given the law and continued to sin. In the new covenant, God gives his Holy Spirit and it is by his spirit that we are enabled to follow his laws. 
God works within his own people, enabling us to do the will of God. That is a tremendous grace which God gives to the world. That's not to say we never sin again. That's not to say we will never struggle again. But at the moment you come to faith, you are justified before God by the justifying work of Christ. You're forgiven in an instant and dwell with the Holy Spirit, but the rest of life is meant to be a journey in growing in faith and holiness. In a true believer, the Spirit bears fruit. Galatians 5 gives an entire section that the Spirit bears love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The fruit that the Spirit produces other passages talk about the transform, transforming work of God. 1 John 3.24 says, Whoever keeps his commands abides in, in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. Have you been born again? Has your life changed because of the gospel? God does a heart transplant whenever someone comes to faith. He gives a new heart. Do you have joy in the Lord? Love for God? Are there areas where you see fruit in your life? Do you have confidence in God's goodness and his promises? Do you have a greater appreciation for the weight of your own sin? Do you feel like your life has been oriented around God? Being born again results in a life that is transformed, not because of our strength, but because of God who works in us. So that's the command which Jesus has given, to be born again. That to enter the kingdom of God, it's necessary. Second point. Divine authority. Jesus isn't just giving some arbitrary opinion. We hear people's opinions of things all the time. Doesn't necessarily carry any weight to it. But Jesus isn't just any ordinary person. Verses 9 and 10. Nicodemus is still dumbfounded by what Jesus has said. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Nicodemus is an expert. He should understand what Jesus meant. He should pick up on the Old Testament references to water and the Spirit. It's a grace that God gives his Spirit to the people. Jesus continues in verse 11. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Jesus has come to give a heavenly testimony. He has come into the world to reveal God. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Jesus is the eternal God of creation who came to the world from heaven. He can therefore speak authoritatively on what is necessary for admittance into the kingdom of God. 
Again, he was the one in the beginning with God. No one has ever seen God, yet of Jesus it says that he was with God. Because Jesus is the Lord. And he can speak authoritatively. He has revealed to Nicodemus that him or anyone else must be born again, born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus doesn't quite understand that. And so Jesus says, how will he understand the heavenly things if he can't understand these earthly things? Jesus has the authority because of who he is and what he did and where he came from. But again, so many people today totally like to disregard the teachings of God, the things that Christ has said. We like to invent our own gospel that oftentimes revolves around us and our inherent goodness or worthiness. But just because we want to believe something doesn't make it so. There's a a small political movement in America called Sovereign Citizens. Basically, it's a group of people who question the legitimacy of our government. Don't generally believe in paying taxes. Don't necessarily believe that they're accountable to the legal system. I was recently watching a a little show on A&E called Live PD. It's It's one of our favorite shows. And a person was being arrested, and she kept saying that she was a sovereign citizen and that they couldn't do this. Guess what? She still got arrested. Just because she doesn't believe it doesn't mean that she can't be arrested. Doesn't mean that she can violate the laws. And I think that's oftentimes the approach that people like to have with God. Like we're equals disagreeing about something when we're not. We have no sovereignty. Jesus is telling us what is necessary for admittance into heaven. He's telling us how to get to God. We must be born again. Jesus says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Again, it is Jesus who has come down to heaven and who, after the resurrection, would be raised back into heaven, who sits in heaven today. And he tells us what's necessary. And we come to our final two verses in the passage. Third point, divine salvation. We've seen a divine command to be born again, the divine authority which Jesus has to give the command, and we end with a picture of the gospel that Jesus gives. So far, this passage really hasn't talked about the role of Jesus in all of this. It is by the Spirit that we are born again, but it is through the work of Christ that we are enabled to be born again. It is Jesus who has died so that we can be redeemed. Again, remember that Jesus is talking to an expert of the Old Testament law, and Jesus is going to make a statement about himself based on the Old Testament. Verses 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, 
so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is making reference to the book of Numbers, 21st chapter. In that chapter, the Israelites have been in their desert wanderings for 40 years. Basically, the entire first generation has died. Throughout their time in the wilderness, Israel has continued to fall into sin and grumbling. God has brought them to the edge of the land, and they continue to complain. God has sustained them for a generation, and they ask why they've been brought into the wilderness to die. They've been given food, and they call that loathsome. They say that they hate what God has given to them. And as a righteous and divine judgment, God brings a plague of poisonous snakes upon the people. Not just for that, but for a history of grumbling and rebellion. The people turned to Moses to intercede on their behalf, Numbers 21.7. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he has taken away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. God will give Moses instruction on what the people must do. Numbers 21.8, And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. And Jesus looks to this event in the Old Testament And he shows it as pointing to himself. As the bronze servant was lifted up on the pole, so also will Jesus be lifted up. Five times in the Gospel of John, Jesus refers to being lifted up. Each of those five times, it refers to the crucifixion when Jesus was literally lifted up on the cross. Again, keep in mind that so far in this passage, Jesus has talked of a need to be born again and of the role of the Spirit in being born again. But here he points to the eternal life that comes through Jesus, who was lifted up. Perhaps it seems like an odd connection that Jesus is comparing himself to this event with a bronze serpent in Numbers 21. But there's several reasons why that story is a good picture of the gospel. And a person being healed because of looking to the snake? It took their salvation totally out of their own hands. It was entirely the work of God. And so too we see this in the gospel. It is not based on us or how good we are. We are totally helpless to save ourselves, to heal ourselves from the disease of sin. It is looking to the cross, to looking at what Jesus has done to trusting Jesus by faith that we can have salvation. Second, the serpent, that doesn't make any sense. Why a golden snake? The world is confounded by the gospel and the message of grace. The idea that sinful people can be freely forgiven based on what someone else has done. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. The world is offended 
by the message of the gospel, by the idea of salvation as a gift of God's grace, because we want to save ourselves. We want to see how, how we measure up and feel good about how good we've been. But the gospel is that you cannot earn it. Rather, you look to what Jesus has done. Third, the Israelites were grumbling and complaining and blaspheming against God, and yet God saves them. Jesus came into a world where people condemned him, plotted against him, betrayed him, and killed him. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for you. Fourth, most literally, the bronze serpent was lifted up on the pole. And Jesus was literally lifted up on the cross. Fifth, for the Israelites who were afflicted, afflicted by the serpent's bite, life was found by looking to the serpent. For us today, eternal life is found in looking to Christ. We are infected by the venom of sin, and it's a killer. And there is nothing that we can do. There's no antidote that we have in ourselves. There's nothing we can do to remove the poison. The only antidote is found in looking to Jesus. It is he who went to the cross for our salvation. And referring to the Numbers passage, Jesus is telling Nicodemus the gospel. That it is Christ who will be lifted up for sinners. And to have a heavenly hope we must believe in what the Lord has done. We believe in Jesus. We are given the Holy Spirit to transform our lives from the inside out to the glory of God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I do thank you for your gospel. That no matter how sinful we are, that there is grace, Lord, we can turn to you. Lord, I thank you for your spirit, which Jesus refers to as a helper. And that the work that you do in our lives, through the new heart that you give us, through the cleansing which you bring, let us be your people, Lord, and serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.